Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weirdoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. I've been trying to decide if Acts 19 is my favorite chapter in the book of Acts. It it very well might be. It's a toss-up between um, Acts 1 through 28. Any one of those could be my favorite, my fave, my favorite. But Acts 19 is insane. We got to break it down in this extension. I preached a message called Souls and Scrolls. You got to watch it before you watch this extension. I think it's going to be difficult to follow along with this if you haven't. Um, and it was such a cool moment when we did this here with all the Weird One fam. Just like it says in Acts 19, verse 19, it says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly because revival was happening in Ephesus. Same thing was happening for us when I preached this message. Now, you won't be able to see it in the message, but if I could like tell you what happened behind the scenes, I finished preaching. We hit the altars, a response time, we would call it, with worship, just to be in the Lord's presence. And then afterwards, everybody brought things that were keeping them from going to the next level with Jesus. And we had a massive bonfire and they burned the scrolls. They weren't actual scrolls because in Acts 19, there were like magic incantations of demonic sorcery, but they burned a lot of stuff and we were giving it to Jesus. And so I'll tell you, I want to show you a couple of those moments. Uh, that message any moments from the fire, any other things I'm going to reference, other teachings, anything, other extensions, anything, they'll all be linked in the description. You can see all that stuff. Some really incredible stuff here in Acts 19, though, and I want to dive in, but before I can get to the actual text of Acts 19 and unpack what was happening in the epicenter of Greek culture here in Ephesus, incredible. I think it's important to note what's transpiring in Corinth while the Apostle Paul is there in Ephesus. Why? Because while he is there in Ephesus, he writes his first letter to the Corinthian church that really gives us all of the knowledge we need to know of what is happening there in Corinth. So in 51 AD, Paul establishes the Corinthian church there on his second missionary journey. We would see it as Acts 18 in the book of Acts, where he goes on his second missionary journey, stops in Corinth, plants the church. He then ends the chapter. He makes his way back to Syria, goes up to his church there in Antioch in Syria, connects at his home church, tells him, hey, here's all the great stuff that's happened. Then the Bible indicates that they go through Galatia, Phrygia, and they start their third missionary journey, and they come to Ephesus, which is where Acts 19 begins here. So Paul was in Ephesus for three years. He preaches, the Bible says, boldly in the synagogue for three months. Then he goes to the lecture hall of uh, Tyrannus. We're going to break that down here in a little bit. He's there for two years speaking there. And then the, major, the rest of his time there in Ephesus, nine months, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's seen witches and warlocks turn to Jesus. And he's dealing with a major riot. There's a lot of stuff to cover in this extension, I'll tell you. But at some point, we got to talk about Corinth here. At some point, while Paul is in Ephesus, it's around 57 AD, some Corinthian Christians, they work for a businesswoman named Chloe, and they end up visiting him in Ephesus, and they bring him some bad news. Like, hey, Paul, 
I know you just planned the church, bro, but it ain't going well. Like, there's some stuff happening here. If you've ever read Paul's letters, to, he has two of them, to the Corinthians, then you know that <laughs> the church in Corinth was just, they were bad news bears in some ways. Paul was there for a year and a half. So, I mean, a lot went down while he was there. He was able to establish a lot, but there's also a lot that they had in need. There was church division taking place, jealousy, strife, uh, lawsuits. <laughs> People were wanting to sue each other, so Paul's having to deal with that. A dude sleeps with his dad's wife. A dude sleeps with his stepmom. So Paul has to write to that. And so what happens is Paul writes 1 Corinthians in response to a letter full of questions from the church there in Corinth. And then remember, it's a verbal report of like Chloe's people. She show, uh, They show up and they're like, hey, Paul, crazy stuff. So let me read you some of that. This is what's happening while Paul is in Ephesus. This is what's happening in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 to 18. My brothers and sisters, he writes, some from Chloe's household, so these are the ones that show up, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Uh, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he's obviously being sarcastic here. Paul's addressing a church that is dividing themselves over different church leaders rather than uniting themselves over Jesus Christ. They're picking and choosing who they're going to follow rather than choosing to unify and follow Christ. He continues, is Christ divided? Remember? He's saying this statement again. Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So how, look how he continues. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say you were baptized in my name. Look, look, listen, it's not about me. Now, Crispus was the synagogue leader there in Corinth. We read that in Acts chapter 18. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. He's kind of like checking his memory here. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross uh, of Christ be emptied of its power, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, you notice in verse 16, Paul mentions that he baptizes here this person, Stephanus. So later in his first letter, Paul shows us that Chloe's household, while he's in Ephesus, they're not the only ones that come over to Ephesus. Also here, it says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 17, he said, I was glad when Stephanus Fortunatus um, Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Like, he's like, I got some support. My dog showed up and they were like, hey, keep it up. You got this. But also, Paul, can I tell you, uh, there's a lot going down there in Corinth. It's not just, it's not just what Chloe's people had to say. Between Chloe's people and these three, they bring a letter from the church at Corinth full of questions. Questions like, okay, so you talked about uh, not associating with the sexually immoral. Like, how do we go about that? Or if believers 
are married to unsaved spouses, what do we do? Do we, do we divorce them or how do we go about this? They were asking questions about getting married in general, eating and drinking things, sacrifice to idols, uh, women covering their heads, speaking in the church. So Paul writes all of this first letter while he's in Ephesus, focused on building these people up. He's writing back to the previous church that's showing up to him. They're like, we got some problems. You can't just plant this church. You're only with us a year and a half and then leave. I'd be like, I was in Thessalonica for three weeks. Like, what are y'all, what, what are y'all talking about right now? Like, I was with you for a year and a half. And so he's trying to continue to build what's happening there in Ephesus, but he does care deeply about what's happening at this previous church he planted, right, in Corinth. Do you have perspective now? So while he is dealing with the craziness that we're going to continue to talk about, or in the message you'll see, Souls and Scrolls, of Ephesus, the craziness there, it's a madhouse. He is also writing back, caring about, believing in, loving the church in Corinth, okay? Now that we got that out of the way, I want you to just have perspective. It wasn't just one thing. When you're in ministry, it's everything at the same time. Everybody needs you. There's different things you're addressing all the time. But now that we got that under control, hopefully a little bit, church at Corinth is crazy. Let's go into Acts 19. Let's dive deep and let's look at the conflict. Let's look at the storyline. What is happening strictly only now in Ephesus? I love this chapter. You come out of the gate, the first seven verses immediately. It is so cool. These first seven verses set up very simply, 12 disciples of John the Baptist, people that follow how John taught repentance. They end up realizing, oh, Jesus, he's the full Messiah. Paul's like, yeah, baptism of Jesus. Become a follower of Jesus. They give the life to Jesus. They become baptized in the name of Jesus and water. And then when Paul lays his hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes them. Remember verse six. This is the moment I'm talking about. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now I talk uh, a lot more about speaking in tongues and the extension, the product of power. And another one I talk uh, a little bit more from a different angle about, I think that's useful as well, is even the Gentiles. And the thing I want you to take note about this idea of speaking in tongues that we see in Acts 19 is it really connects in a powerful way to Acts 10. The extension, even the Gentiles, is the one that deals with Acts 10. What I mean is unlike in Acts chapter 2, where people from all over the Roman Empire, like a million people, they gather at this time, right, of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit shows up, tongues of fire, mighty Russian wind, they're speaking in other tongues. Well, because these different, like, speaking people from all over the place, they hear the speaking in tongues, but it's like, oh, that's in our, that's in our native language from another place. That's how it was in Acts 2. So a lot of people try to use the argument, well, that's how it happened in Acts 2. But in Acts 10... In Acts 10, Peter's there in the house of Cornelius. They all speak Greek. So when they spoke in other tongues, there wasn't a need to translate to a different language. It was just worship unto God. This is also what is exactly happening in Acts 19. It was a heavenly language given to them simply only to be able to worship God. And I think this detail of these 12 men that are speaking in tongues is not only important that we can understand today. See, I speak in tongues. The Apostle Paul, he writes, I wish you'd speak in tongues more than me. At our church here, we believe in the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues. We believe it's a, it's a language of power. It's a language of worship. And you can see here that these 10 men are evidence in Acts 19, Acts 10, some other instances where 
Acts 2 isn't the only instance where speaking in tongues was happening because that was a very specific way as a witness under those people there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. It's not the only way to do it. That it, it doesn't have to be just another language here on planet Earth to translate. It can. I talk about that in those extensions. But it can also just be worship unto God where it doesn't translate to somebody else. It's just simply a heavenly language. This is what we see in Acts 19, but it wasn't just that, a proof of the Holy Spirit moving and active today. It was also a confirmation of Paul's apostleship. And I think that's like honestly so important because in the same way that Peter in Acts 10 shows up in Cornelius's house and that when he is there and he's confirming the believers and they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's actually interesting. Peter's preaching in Acts 10 they are baptized in the Spirit, then Peter baptizes them in water. But in Acts 19, they're baptized in water, and then they're baptized in the Spirit. Either way, I think by Paul laying his hands on them there in Ephesus in Acts 19, in the same way that Peter, as an apostle, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that shows his apostleship. Now I think that Luke intentionally includes this in Acts 19 to show, hey, Peter's not the only one that his apostleship is coming forth. Paul is also an apostle. Now, Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. Like, hey, listen, I know I was persecuting Christians. Hey, I know I wasn't following Jesus. But let me tell you, I still am an apostle, and I, I bear the true marks of an apostle, he says. I think that Acts 19 is a great indication to show that, indeed, the apostle Paul is a true apostle. See, after seeing these 12 men baptized in water, then baptized in the Holy Spirit, Paul, he's like, let's build a church. So he starts preaching in the synagogue. As I talked about already, he does this for three months. Verse 9 says, But as he's doing this, some of them, these, these Jews, they become obstinate. They refuse to believe and publicly malign the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, I'm excited to talk about this. Because the lecture hall of Tyrannus, it became monumental on a couple different levels that we just have to discuss. I'll get there about the, the hall itself in a second. But first, who is Tyrannus? Tyrannus, clearly here, he's the owner of this lecture hall. We don't know for sure exactly who, it is, who he is. Some uh, scholars believe that he was a teacher, a philosopher, maybe like an expert in speech who rented out the hall, um, uh, that possibly he was renting it out to philosophers or other teachers that were passing through, and he's like, hey, you could utilize this. I think uh, this lines up really well with the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, in verse 9. It doesn't just call it a lecture hall where he was having daily discussions, but it calls it a school, the school of Tyrannus. The ESV, which is the English Standard Version, that it gives us a detail in the footnote that some Greek manuscripts add that I think is even more crucial to our understanding of what was taking place there. It adds the footnote that, that the school of Tyrannus from the fifth hour to the tenth, that is from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., that's when it was available, it's telling us. And the reason for this detail was to explain that teachers in that region, during that time of the day, you know what they did? They took a siesta. Not to be confused with a fiesta. They took a siesta. They took a nap. They took an afternoon nap. So you know what Paul did? While everybody else was taking a nap, he rented it out and he planted a church. And I think that this is amazing on a couple different levels because t this school and Tyrannus here, who's either running the school, renting it out, whatever, we don't know exactly who it is. He probably was under this understanding like, listen, teachers are tired. 
Students are tired. Nobody during that time of the day can stay up and the heat, the hot sun hitting you. And they're like, everybody just needs to take a nap. So he's thinking rather than just shut it down, we have this dude that wants to use it. Paul, let's either make some money or at the very, at the very least make this space available and utilize it in a, in a great way. So Paul had no problem like thinking, hey, uh, they can't keep people up when they teach. I promise I'm going to keep people up when I preach. He's like, everybody getting tired during this time of the day? Hey, nobody can get tired when I preach because I am preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was crazy. He's like, I've resolved to literally know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Ain't nobody sleeping when I'm preaching. You fall asleep, I'm going to be waking you up. No, 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 no. We talking about Jesus. Wake up. Clearly, this was the case because he started with 12 dudes planting a church in the school of Tyrannus. You know what? You know what the Bible says? It says that in verse 10, all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You know what that means? Ain't nobody falling asleep during this time. While everybody else was taking a nap, Paul was utilizing this school and this hall to be able to preach until everybody in Asia Minor is hearing the word of the Lord. During this two years that the gospel spread throughout Asia Minor, churches like Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, you know, if you have, look at the book of Colossians or Laodicea is mentioned in Revelation, it's one of the churches there near Ephesus in Asia Minor. Colossae is Philemon's church. If you know, if you know Philemon there near the end of the New Testament, that's his church. Those were all planted during this two-year stint of Paul preaching from this school and the gospel spreading throughout Asia Minor. This school was not only the perfect place um, to be able to preach, but it became like Paul's HQ for developing the next generation of church leaders and ministers. Because the gospel was spreading so far, it's very likely, based upon the list of Paul's travelers in Acts chapter 20, that a lot of them were getting trained up at the school. Ones like Epaphras of Colossae, you can see that in Colossians 1 and Philemon, Aristarchus of Thessalonica, and you see that in Colossians 4, Acts 19, and Acts 20, Gaius of Derby, he's referenced right here in Acts 19, or Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia Minor, they're referenced in Acts 20, Acts 21, and other New Testament letters. Trophimus is actually referred to as the Ephesian in Acts 21. So he has obviously deep ties here being trained under Paul, where? At the school of Tyrannus. And it's highly possible that even the wealthy businessmen I just referenced here, book of Philemon, that's Philemon. Paul, in uh, the last chapter of Acts, while he's under house arrest there in Rome, he writes his prison letters. One of them, he wrote to this man named Philemon, who most likely, scholars believe, he was doing business in Ephesus, runs into Paul, probably preaching there at the school, and he gets saved. Now, depending on when you're watching this right now, we're going to be releasing a bonus issue that connects to volume one, issue two. Volume one, issue two of Keep Us Dangerous, I actually started preaching the book of Acts out of order. I started at the very end, and then I, from there, volume two started at the very beginning, if you check it in the playlist. There'll be a link to the entire playlist here in the description, but in volume one, issue two, he's there in Rome, he's under house arrest, he writes this dude Philemon. So we already have recorded a bonus issue that depending on when you're watching this, it's either out and it's linked in this description, or it's coming very soon, and it talks all about this Christian leader, Philemon, that was a, a leader there at the church uh, at Colossae. 
The school of Tyrannus, though, I think it's really special to me because it's the literal example and explanation of why we launched our ministry and leadership school here. Uh, we launched We Are One College in 2021. And as I look at what Acts 19 shows us, especially as you study church history and more into the school of Tyrannus, it is the very reason that we launched the same exact thing here at our church in Michigan. Everything that Paul taught, it was hands-on and it was practical in nature. The men and the women being trained under Paul, they weren't just coming out with like a college or seminary degree. It wasn't just another theology class. It was practical theology, practical Christianity. It was practical leadership. They were hands-on becoming the leaders that God called them to be. They weren't just coming out with some degree in them being like, okay, I know about the Bible. Now what? They hands-on were learning how to be a part of ministry, which is exactly what we do with We Are One College. And to be honest, our example is right here, the School of Tyrannus. Can you imagine that Paul brought these students along with him doing ministry in Ephesus? Possibly they might have even assisted him in the miraculous ministry that was taking place. Remember when the sick are being healed, demons are being cast out just with an apron or a handkerchief? This is happening. It's like around these parts, we just we just carry bandanas on us from now on just to make sure, just in case if a demon needs to be cast out, somebody needs to be healed. But they were part of the spiritual warfare. They were there leading the revival among witches and warlocks, burning 50,000 drachmas, a.k.a. 150 years worth, worth of labor wages, when they're just everything, everything that all of these witches and warlocks had lived for, everything that they had spent their money on, they burned it because the cost of their soul, they recognized, was worth more than the cost of these scrolls. These students, hands-on, were a part of it, which shows me that true leadership can only be learned hands-on. True leadership can only be learned on site. Although I believe in education, even here, we want to make sure that they have a strong college education. I think that true ministry, true leadership training, it only happens when you get in the trenches and you do it with people that know how to do it the way that you're called to do it. Can you imagine being trained, learning ministry from the Apostle Paul? Even greater, can you imagine following Jesus for three and a half years and being trained, learning hands-on ministry? Paul didn't get that opportunity. Peter and John and James and all of them did, but man, that's what the school of Tyrannus is. That's like I think that's why it's so important to me because that's the calling that we have, this, this apostolic calling to raise up more leaders. I'll tell you, the only way that you're going to learn anything that really you're called to do is to get among other people that can mentor you that are already doing it. That one's free. That's just like a little quick little leadership tip. The classroom's great, but hands-on is even better. It says then in verse 20, that as all this is happening in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And I love the correlation of verse 20 to verse 10, because verse 10 says that literally it spreads throughout all of Asia Minor. Verse 20 said, yeah, it didn't stop there. It just kept spreading. The word of the Lord kept spreading, and it grows here in power. People are continuing to turn to Jesus. Verse 21 then says that after all of that happened, after all of this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, 
Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. I think that when I first read this, I don't know about you, it can be a little confusing because it can appear that the Apostle Paul is getting ready to launch and travel right away, but that's not what's happening. It's like recording his thoughts. He's like, okay, after this, I'm actually going to go here. I'm going to do this. He doesn't actually take off right away. It's just talking about what he plans on doing, but we know it says here clearly that he sends Timothy and Erastus ahead of him to Macedonia. He actually doesn't join them until Acts chapter 20. It shows us in the beginning of Acts chapter 20, he takes up, he joins them. Verse 22 here, it's the only time that Paul mentions Timothy. You know, Timothy, his spiritual son, Timothy, it's the only time he mentions him being in Ephesus. Erastus, he's mentioned in Romans chapter 16. Paul actually, while he was in Ephesus, the same way he was writing 1 Corinthians back to the church, he was writing Romans as well. So if you take Romans 16 and then 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, and you put these two chapters together, you'll learn that Erastus is the city treasurer for Corinth. So the church that Paul planted in Acts 18 in Corinth, you can read with Romans and 2 Timothy, that he, Erastus, who Paul sends with Timothy ahead of him to uh, Macedonia, he's the city treasurer there for Corinth. So Paul would have met uh, Erastus on a second missionary journey during that one and a half year stint that he's there in Corinth. Then he sends for them, him to come to Ephesus, most likely then, as we see the list of people that were trained in the school of Tyrannus, he was trained there in the school and then now he's going to become a traveling companion that we're going to read about in Acts 20. So he sends them along here in Acts 19. He'll join him in Acts 20. And Paul here, in the same, it's this small little paragraph we just read, he makes a really important statement that I think is just good to note for later. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. I told you that volume one of our Keep Us Dangerous volumes starts at the end of the book of Acts. It starts with Acts 27, 28, and then the third issue of that first volume um, goes into like church history. How was Paul um, killed and all of these different things? What was happening with you know Nero's circus and the fires of Rome and the you know Jewish-Roman war and all this stuff? That's issue three. Well, in that whole beginning there, in volume one, I think it's important to note right here for the first time Paul mentions that he needs to go to Rome. It, Acts 19, this is the first time that he mentions how we started volume one, but it's technically the end of the book of Acts. When Paul ends up in Rome, this is the first time he mentions it. And the Lord confirms this in Acts 23, verse 11. And it shows that the Lord stands near Paul and he spoke to him at night and he confirms, yes, you need to go to Rome. So Paul decides to stay in Ephesus. Even though he has plans for all this, he decides to stay there for a little bit longer it ends up totaling, as we said, three years. And then in verse 23, about that time, there arose a great disturbance <laughs> about the way. Um, that just cracks me up. A great disturbance. And it's like, if I feel like I'm in Star Wars, the emperor in Star Wars. There's a great disturbance in the force. <laughs> so, okay. If you're not a Star Wars fan, I should keep moving. If you are, you're welcome. So there's a great disturbance about the way and a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this 
fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Don't forget it. Verse 10, the whole province. And he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. I, I talk a lot about how Paul addresses this idea of gods made by human hands and the, and the extension following Jesus. He speaks to the Athenians about that there in Greece, right? There in Athens. So it's not necessarily connected to what he was saying here to the Ephesians, but it's the same principle. I think that's a great teaching that will help you how Paul would address idols and gods made by human hands. Same concept here. Demetrius continues though. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the whole world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. This chunk of scripture helps give a little bit more perspective to the condition of the city of Ephesus. Now, I explained that in detail in the message Souls and Scrolls, but you can see here that the city, at least before Paul gets there, before he arrives, it's crowded with idols. Verses 11 and 19, it gives us understanding that the school of Tyrannus is surrounded by witchcraft. So you have this school where Paul is preaching and training and and launching this church in the city. And all around it's witchcraft and demons and worshipers of Artemis. And the great goddess Artemis, great goddess, goddess Artemis, mentioned heavenly between verses 23 to 41, the whole back half of Acts 19, was one of many Greek mythological gods. But the great goddess Artemis, Artemis is the one specifically that the Ephesians worship. It's where they brought all of their worship and attention. Artemis was the daughter of Zeus and Leto and the twin of twin sister of Apollo. She was considered there to them the goddess of many things, which is why they revered her so greatly. She was the goddess of wild animals and then also the hunt, of vegetation, of chastity, yeah, ironically also childbearing. That's funny. If you don't know, it's because you're not old enough. You don't need to yet. She was considered also to be immortal and extremely powerful. Her powers included perfect aim with a bow and arrow. That would make sense since she's the goddess of the hunt as well. The ability to turn herself into animals, which makes sense because she's the goddess of wild animals. And she could heal diseases and could control nature. Artemis was beloved and worshipped throughout Asia Minor which is why now we just heard the the little rant that Demetrius is going on. It's why he makes the argument that she will be robbed of her divine majesty. But can I just point out two things really quick? Number one, if you can be robbed of your divine majesty, it's not very divine because they tried to rob Jesus Jesus of his and he ended up doing the robbing, the grave. If you're divine, you can't be robbed of it. So first of all, Demetrius, that's a very stupid comment. I would like to just point that out, even though we'll never meet. Number two, Demetrius is presenting this like he deeply cares for Artemis. Like he's just wanting to worship her and he cares so much. But you know what the reality is? Since Paul got into town and people are coming to follow Jesus and get baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, his sales are tanking. 
these idolatrous shrines that he would make and statues and idols that he created that were going through the roof because everybody in Asia wanted to worship Artemis, yeah, they're tanking, like tremendously. So he's scared to death. If Paul sticks around, which it was great, Paul did for three years, preached the devil's pants off. If Paul sticks around, he's fearing that his business is going to go completely belly up, completely under. It's not going to exist anymore if Paul sticks around. So although Demetrius makes it sound like he cares so much about Artemis, you know what he really cared about? His pocketbook. So like the rabble rouser that he is, he began to play on the emotions of the people. And he wanted to focus them on their Ephesian goddess. We got to protect Artemis. So in verse 28, when they heard this, it's a good speech, Demetrius. They were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. So the highlighting of Gaius and Aristarchus in verse 29, I think it gives even greater evidence to the fact that Ephesus was the training ground of Paul and that the school of, of um, Tyrannus was training up people like this, that Aristarchus and Gaius were there. This was not your typical Bible college. These dudes weren't just learning, sitting there, Bibles open, and be like, okay, and so it says here. Like, they were on the front lines living out the word of God. How do we know? Because it says here that they were seized. They were, they were not just being trained behind the scenes. They were being trained on the front lines, a part of ministry. And Gaius and Aristarchus, they're taken here. They're rushed into the theater. And it says in verse 30 that Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The love that the people have for the Apostle Paul, it honestly moves me. You know why? Because it wasn't just a reflection of their respect for Paul. It was a reflection of their love for Jesus. They cared about one another so deeply, and they saw that Paul was a leader, a leader after God's own heart, a leading this movement forward like the world had never seen. And they knew that they wanted to stand with somebody like that and protect him. So then it says in, in verse 31, we just read here, I, I want to highlight this again. Because if you understand this, this blew my mind when I began to dig into this verse. It says that even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Who were these officials? That's the question we have to ask. They don't want him to go into the theater. They don't want him to risk his life. The crowd is crazy. So who are they? These officials. There's a name in the Greek. To just make it simple, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it out. But these were men tasked with enforcing Rome's religious imperial cult is the best way to explain it. What they were tasked with enforcing was that all of the citizens here of Rome, the Roman Empire, they had to bring incense. They sprinkled incense before the statue of um, Augustus, Augustus, the emperor. So they had to sprinkle this incense before him. And they were tasked with enforcing that everyone had to do that. Okay. 
So this was obviously not something that Paul was going to do. This was straight idolatry. There's no way that he was going to sprinkle incense or stand before or pray or do anything with any idol, especially of the emperor or Artemis or any other god. Not gods made by human hands. He talks about that, right? So he isn't going to do it. So I'm confused because it says here that these officials were friends of Paul. And so is it, is it is it maybe that they just, maybe they don't enforce it with people. Maybe they're just nice to everybody. It's like, hey, if you could do this possibly, uh, it's it's our job. It's what we're supposed to tell you to do. Could you do it? Do they enforce it or, or not? They do. Because it says in Revelation, you want to hear Jesus speak? Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. They do enforce it because when Jesus writes to the church at Pergamum, to give you perspective before I read it, they're in Asia Minor where we are in Acts 19, Ephesus, you also have Philadelphia and Pergamon and Laodicea, all the churches there, right? Jesus writes the seven churches in Revelation, Ephesus being one of them, Pergamum, Pergamum being one of them. And he speaks to the church in Pergamum and he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name. And you do not deny my faith even in the days, check this, of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. So Jesus is referencing this guy, Antipas, and he's saying he's faithful, he's my witness. What happened to him? Who was killed among you where Satan dwells? So he's saying that even though word is spreading, the word of the Lord is spreading, this is a realm where Satan dwells. Paul talks about this, how Satan would keep him from getting to certain places. So this guy, Antipas, here, Jesus talks about. Why? Why does he highlight this guy, and how is it connected here to Acts chapter 19? This region of Asia Minor, Ephesus, Pergamum, where it's all located, this was the province under the control of these officials. What officials? The officials we just read about that were writing to Paul, that were saying, not writing to Paul, telling, telling Paul, listen, bro, don't go in there, don't go in the theater. That's the same officials that we're talking about that are over this province. So who is this guy, Antipas? This man, Antipas, was a first-century Christian, a courageous Christian, I tell you, that when these officials were enforcing that you must sprinkle incense and you must come before this statue of the um, of, of like the emperor, he wouldn't do it. So what happened? Jesus wrote about it, Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. He says, Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed? Why was he killed? Follow church history. He was killed, and Jesus mentions him because he and Pergamum and that province would not defile himself by worshiping something made by human hands, by, burn, by bringing this incense. So if you're wondering if it's like, oh, you know, they just play it easy and they don't actually enforce it. No, we proved it here with Antipas. They very clearly enforce needing to do this right here in this province. Which brings us to Paul. What does this have to say about Paul? If Antipas was killed, what does this have to say about Paul? See, Paul was the type of guy, he didn't take no crap from anybody. He stood up to them, but although he stood up to these officials and said, listen, I ain't doing that, he still befriended them. I ain't seen anybody with grace and favor and influence like the Apostle Paul. So although Antipas was killed for being unwilling to do this, Paul also was unwilling. But it, not only was he not killed, he, bef 
befriended them. And when he was in need, they came to his rescue saying, don't go in the theater. We're looking out for you. These are not Christians. These are not believers. These are the type of people that would kill other Christians and believers. Yet they were looking out for Paul. And no wonder they didn't want Paul to go into the theater. It was crazy in there, complete madhouse. The people are ransacking the place with their shouting and their craziness. It says in verse 32 that the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. (laughs) They're just there for a crazy party. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So we don't know for sure who Alexander is, but let's speculate. Maybe even let's infer with a couple pieces of information here, some understanding from these verses. Number one, we know that Alexander is a Jew. Scripture clearly outlines this, makes it clear. And I think this is important to understand because if he's a Jew, that's going to determine what he's about to say about Paul. So I want you to notice here that he isn't able to speak. The people actually start shouting he's unable to, which makes me wonder, I wonder if God allowed the people to start shouting to shut this man up because what he might have had to say against Paul could have put Paul in a lot of trouble. But his mouth is shut because the people are shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Number two, this is a little more speculation, but just follow me kind of on this journey because names and scriptures and things start connecting and it's really kind of powerful to mention. It is possible that he is a synagogue, uh, like a synagogue leader, that he's a member of the synagogue in some way. That's possible. But it's also possible that he's the one that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 4, verse 14. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, I use that in the NASB on purpose. I'll show you here in one second. We can speculate, okay? Scripture's not clear on this, but we could speculate, and this could make sense because think about it. Demetrius, the silversmith, is the dude getting the the crowd in an uproar, remember? He is the one that would construct all these different idols and these shrines. So as a silversmith, could it make sense, that's why I use the NSB, that a coppersmith could link up and they could speak the same terms. They're metal workers, right? So the Jews push Alexander forward and Demetrius is the one that kind of got this whole situation crazy, started this whole debacle. But is it possible that Alexander referred to in 2 Timothy as a coppersmith and the re, and he's the one that the Jews push forward because if Demetrius is the silversmith and Alexander is the coppersmith, that together they could bring an argument forth in the same way against Paul and against what he was doing. Even though Alexander is a Jew, he could link to the idea of being metal workers and working together. Okay, so although it's not recorded in Acts, there could have been, again, we're speculating, there could have been more to the story. Paul said that Alexander did me a great deal of harm. Maybe before this moment, Alexander was in Ephesus and he did Paul a great deal of harm. And that's what Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's also entirely possible that that's not it at all. And it's a completely different Alexander in 2 Timothy because this was seven years later from this time. So when Paul writes 2 Timothy, that's in 64 AD. 
seven years from this moment in Acts 19 when he's in Ephesus. So the question then becomes, does he hang on to this for seven years to then write about it to Timothy? That's the question. And we won't know for sure, but it is interesting to speculate. Either way, because Alexander, remember, a Jew, he tries to speak up to the crowd, and once they found out it was a Jew, the crowd goes crazy. They shut him up, and they scream like numbskulls for two hours straight. Can you imagine being in your neighborhood, in your city, and a group, a mob of people is just screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours straight? I don't care what you scream for two hours straight. It's going to drive me nuts. That's what's happening here in Ephesus. It says in, the, in verse 35 that the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Artemis is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis in her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You know, he references here the temple of the great Artemis. Do you realize that even today, the temple of Artemis is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? So we have like the seven wonders of the world, and then there's the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis here that is referred to in Acts 19 is still considered one of the greats of even today. He continues, you have brought these men here, who's he referring to? Gaius and Aristarchus, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Now remember, Paul isn't there. They're keeping him from going into this theater. They're like, you can't go in there. This is crazy. They're going to kill you if you go in there. But they got a hold of Gaius and Aristarchus, Aristarchus. And this city clerk, he's like, listen, listen, listen. You're just trying to find somebody to blame. You don't even have Paul. So you seize these guys because you're trying to find somebody to blame. And, and listen, y'all need to let them go because they didn't even do anything wrong. And this is the, I want you to notice here, when Gaius and Aristarchus are pulled here into this theater, this is the second time that Paul is wanted, but others are taken. We see this in Acts 17 as well, when Jason and his household and the believers there, they're pulled out of the house. And it says that these, these were the men that were, they were upsetting the, the world, right? This is the next time that it's written about. Uh, so it continues. The city clerk says, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion. Like He's like, listen, we're in trouble. This is going to be a problem here since there's no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Now, I want you to notice just a few things here as this clerk is speaking. The city clerk, he opens up the theater so they can meet. He's like, let's all gather in here because this is something that they did in that culture. They'd meet in that area and they'd discuss, they'd have conversations, discussions, um, court cases, whatever it was, right? So they were used to meeting there. But he's freaking out because like this is getting way out of hand. And he makes a number of main points here why he needs to shut this down. Number one, Gaius and Aristarchus, he's like, they never committed any crimes. We literally have no grounds for holding these guys. We got to let them go. This is a problem. We are holding them against their will. This is a crime. Let them go. We got to shut this thing down. Get them out of here. Number two, since the Roman Empire, it didn't give its citizens freedom of assembly, 
this was considered illegal. And as the city clerk, he knew that. They didn't have a license and they didn't have any oversight of a magistrate. So do you know what this was considered? Because it's not a legal assembly, you know what it is? A riot. It's a group of crazy people for two hours yelling. This is not being over like seen correctly. This is not have the license it's supposed to have. This is a riot. And the Roman Empire did not deal well with riots. I mean, they would straight torch that thing. They, they would end it. They don't care what violence they're going to bring. They don't care what they got to do. They will not allow rioting to happen in their city and what they would oversee. Number three, because, notice this, of the calm and thorough nature of this city clerk, he brings forth all of these different reasons why this has to shut down. Not only the city was saved from the Roman wrath against this riot, but also Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus were able to exit peacefully. I like every once in a while just like giving a shout out to the B characters in the Bible. You know what I mean? It's like, I know it's not Paul. I Like most of us, when you know who Gaius and Aristarchus are, if we didn't talk about it, but what about the city clerk? What about this dude? You know what I mean? It's like, because of the way he approached this, not only does he just like quiet this mob, save the city, but Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus, they're able to take off into Acts chapter 20. Thank God for Acts chapter 20. Look at verse one. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Remember, just like he said he would. He said, I'm going to go here and here and here. I'm going to end up in Rome. And if you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what's going to happen. So he takes off to Macedonia. You know why? Because Paul realized it was time to move on. There's something about just knowing when God has called you to the next thing. And there's also something about knowing when God has asked you to stay. And I think being sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit and knowing how to do that's so important as believers. I think many of us were asking God for his direction before we step out in faith. But I've found that most of the time, God asks us to step out in faith before he's ever going to give us firm direction. Think about when Paul's led there to Ephesus. He had no idea how long he was going to stay there. He didn't know he was going to preach three months in synagogues, and then basically they're all ticked off about it. So he's like, okay, school of Tyrannus. I'm going to rent this, this puppy out between 11 and 4. When everybody else is sleeping, I'm going to build a church. Does that for two years. For nine months, then on top of that, creating a total of three years. He's healing, casting out demons, this, the riding. Like, he didn't know how long he was going to be there. He was just trying to be faithful to follow the Holy Spirit. But he did know. that This is the thing about being connected to the voice of the Lord. He did know finally when the time was up. He knew that when this rioting happened in the theater, he saw it as a sign that the Holy Spirit was revealing to him that his time in Ephesus had come to an end. I think I would just hopefully challenge you, encourage you with a really simple thought. Being led of the Lord, being led of the Holy Spirit, it's only hard if you're unwilling to do what he says when he says it. It's only difficult if you're not willing. If you're willing to go where he says, when he says, and do what he says, it's never hard hearing him. It's only hard if you put a limit to what his voice might ask you to do. 
it's only hard if you put a limit to where he might ask you to go. It's only hard if you try to minimize who he's asking you to become. He's saying become more like me. He even gives us an example of in Acts chapter 19 here of people like Paul. We don't know much about him, but Gaius, Aristarchus, these were ones I think that we can learn a lot about that they knew how to follow their leader. They knew how to build the church. They knew how to all stay unified. Timothy knew how to be like, okay, sweet, we're going to be sent. We're going to go to Macedonia. We're going to prepare the way before Paul gets there in Acts 20. Being led of the Lord is only hard if you're unwilling to do what he says when he says it. Because you'll find that beginnings are really just the start of great endings. And as you can see here from Acts 19 to Acts 20, endings are really just a beautiful beginning. There's something about knowing you've been faithful to what God has asked of you. And you can recognize that an ending is just a beautiful beginning. It's when somebody like my, my papa, who at the time of this is 93 years old, to know like the apostle Paul said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. There's something for him already now touching heaven. He's ready to go home. He, know that the, he knows that the ending is very near. But he recognizes that at some point when he takes that last breath, that ending is really just a beautiful beginning. I don't know what this is for. I don't, I don't know if this is for the career or calling or city or where God is trying to place you, what he's trying to do with you, who he's trying to help you become. Beginnings are amazing, but beginnings are always leading to a great ending. What's the point of starting the book if you're not going to get to a great ending in it? So the current chapter might not be great, but there is a great ending coming. For those of you that are maybe in the midst of hearing the Lord and he, he's challenging you in a transition or whatever, it is, just to clarify, that transition's not to leave your marriage. That, that transition's not to leave a church poorly. That transition is not to be unfaithful at your job or whatever it's going to be in life. I'm saying ending well. Listening to the Holy Spirit and know that he's turning the page. Because an ending that is immersed in his voice, an ending that is marked with the name of Jesus, an ending like my Papa Chris very soon, will experience. It's always a beautiful beginning. And I want to encourage you that God has beautiful beginnings for you. He's a life worth living. He has a spirit worth following. He has a name worth exalting. And he has not only a powerful ending in store for you called death, which is our first breath with him, called heaven. But man, that's a beautiful beginning. 
So Lord, I pray for your people right now. I pray for anyone listening that is struggling to finish strong, that is scared to follow your voice, that is wondering what's next. I pray that you'd make us sensitive like the Apostle Paul to know that there are times when there are riots and there's craziness that we stay and we pursue where we we might have gotten stoned and we go back in the city. And there's also times like in Ephesus where the rioting takes place and we see it as a sign to move on. Lord, we know that you're speaking. We know that you're teaching us. So I pray that you would show us even in this moment how to follow your voice and be led of you. Thank you for great and powerful endings. Even more, I thank you for a beautiful ending. I mean, a beautiful beginning, I should say. A beautiful beginning for, Lord, some that are having babies, some that are starting marriages, some that are starting their brand new careers or stepping into their callings. Also some right now that feel like whatever they're facing and whatever chapter is closing as the book is being finished, they feel like, God, can you still use me? What do you have for me next? Am I still purposeful? I just speak right now in the name of Jesus that this great and powerful ending is really just a beautiful beginning. And I ask for the next days ahead to be marked by your spirit, that they would receive power even in this moment to continue forth in all that you called them to until we are with you in heaven. I pray this in the amazing name, the awesome name of Jesus. Amen. I love y'all.